This podcast is strictly for mature listeners. So if you're under the legal drinking age, you are not permitted to listen under UK law. If you would prefer not to hear conversations about alcohol, you may want to listen to something else. But if that's not you, stay with us for Bar Fabric Presents. Hello and welcome to Bar Fabric Presents, a podcast brought to you by the Brown Foreman Advocacy Team. Each episode, you'll hear from our team of ambassadors as we share stories about the brands we're proud to represent and the people who've inspired us along the way. I'm Ali Didienko, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this episode of Bar Fabric Presents. In every episode, you'll hear from one of the team defending drinks that either have a bad rep or are overlooked in a segment called You're Wrong About. Today, Charlotte will be stating the case for non-age statement whiskeys. Can she change your mind? Does age matter? Also, in every episode, you'll hear from hospitality professionals with colorful backstories and priceless insight into our industry. You'll hear the first part of this week's How'd You Get That Job with Jonathan Almond, founder of Delightful Media and Delightful Drinks. And to round off this episode, Danny will talk about the importance of simplicity. He'll make you think about streamlining menus and will recommend a book that will help you keep it simple. First, though, Charlotte's persuasive argument for non-age statement whiskies. Hello, I'm Charlotte Coyle, and I'm the Single Malts Ambassador at Brown Foreman UK. I'm here to tell you some really, really important news. You're wrong about non-age statement whiskey. Close your eyes and picture the scene. You're looking online at your favourite independent whiskey shop for a bottle to enjoy over the weekend with your friends and family. Excited? Probably getting thirstier by the second? You scour the virtual shelves looking for the ideal bottle. If you're one of the people who judges by the label, hey, there's no judgment from me. You scour for 5, 10, 15 minutes, looking for the perfect dram, setting your filters to your preferred age. Do you think it's going to be a 12-year-old this weekend? Maybe an 18? Then, like the paperclip from Microsoft Word, appearing just as you're on the cusp of a strike of inspiration, I magically and annoyingly appear. No. I'm not here to check if you're writing a letter or if you need to add a graph to your page. I'm here to tell you your biggest mistake yet. Can you guess what it is? I won't keep you in suspense. You've missed out on some of the best bottlings in the world simply by looking for a certain age. In the single malt world, we have a habit of casting non-age statement bottlings aside, mainly because they're younger than what we're looking for. I get it. It's worrying to splash some cash on a bottle that you're not even sure is going to be worth the price when it doesn't even have an age on the label. We're generally taught as whiskey connoisseurs that age matters, that we should be looking for a number on a bottle to determine whether something is worth our time and attention. And we've been told this for years. If it's not, we shouldn't really give it a second thought, right? Some studies actually show that 89% of whiskey drinkers look for an age when they're selecting their bottle. So as we know, the legal requirement of single malts means that whatever number you put on your bottle is the youngest whiskey in the batch, which means anything in a non-age statement expression could be anywhere from three years old uh, to nine or ten years old, and it's sometimes significantly older. Non-age statement whiskies have risen to prominence to keep up with the demand for the Scottish liquid gold. Many stocks of the older bottlings for many brands have depleted significantly. Whatever people laid down in cask 10, 12, 15 years ago it's often just not enough to satisfy all of our consumers. I like to think of it as picking apples off a tree. If there was a perfect ripe one sat there, would you leave it because you're waiting for it to be a year old? Of course you wouldn't. You'd pick it down and take a bite. 
and I might have just made it clear that I know absolutely nothing about how long apples grow for, but I know something about making good whiskey. The beauty about non-age statement whiskies is that it gives our blenders the freedom to play around creatively with what's in their casks. It allows them to explore depth, complexity, and innovation without being constrained. If we're not limited to numbers, then we can focus on other things. In our Glendronic traditionally peated, as an example, we allow our peat to sing and roar through that younger whiskey, and it's highlighted beautifully with the port casks it's been resting in. In Ben Rieck's malting season, we're able to celebrate the incredible work that goes into our floor malted whiskey. This is a process that we complete just once a year for eight weeks. This gives the whiskey an amazing nutty, fudgy note. It's almost like it's been drizzled in honey. If we were to focus on maturing that whiskey for 12 or 15 years, it would change completely and the influence of the cask over the 100% floor malted barley would be undeniable. Now that we're slowly realising that colour doesn't necessarily mean a whiskey is better, I think we need to do the same with non-age statement whiskies. We need to allow them into our shelves and our hearts. No more should we blank out anything less than a 10-year-old single malt and close ourselves off to the possibilities of younger, livelier flavours. Some of them might be a little rogue, and that's the beauty of sampling, because you can try lots of different things. But I believe there is a non-age statement whiskey of perfection that suits anyone. Mine? It's Glenglasser Evolution. It tastes like pancakes, bananas, blueberries, drizzled with maple syrup. They're light and playful flavours which work really well with the 50% ABV in the bottle. Now, I've given you my arguments, so let's imagine again, close your eyes and revisit the whiskey shop. Now you are free. You're free from the bounds of an age statement whiskey. You can enjoy the creativity and the focus that comes with a non-age statement whiskey. Perhaps you'll discover a new cask that you've never considered before, or a whiskey created with a new method, whether it's through fermentation or through distillation processes. The possibilities when it comes to non-age statement whiskies are absolutely endless. And your journey is about to begin. have to say, I'm with Charlotte on this one. Hello, and welcome to How Do You Get That Job? Today, I have the absolute pleasure of chatting to Jonathan Almond. He's the founder of the fantastic Delightful Drinks platform and drinks, and also not drinks, Media Wizard. We first met on the set of a Fentiman's shoot at Lackey Kane and have worked together on a couple of projects since. It is always such a joy hanging out and working together. Uh, Thank you very much for being here, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, it's a long way. I appreciate it. What, where are you coming from? I am based in Walthamstow. So I, I live in Walthamstow. Um, I have a, an office slash studio in Hackney, uh, in Containerville. So, oh, nice. Yeah, I, I like to keep it east. Yeah, so yeah. This is, well, this me is very too. West. It feels like a holiday. It's kind of fun. Holiday in Acton. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've found these, uh, these introductions that I've been doing kind of interesting because, you know, I want to be complimentary. Be really nice. I don't want to go on for too long because I can sort of see the other person in the corner squirming at the compliments and stuff. Um, so I've got to keep it snappy and then obviously think of other ways to sort of like make people feel uncomfortable. First question being like, so John, what's your home address? <laughs> How do I find you? <laughs> Offline. Um, um, so look, we'll get started. Uh, what does a typical day look like for you, man? So cop out answer completely, but I don't really have a typical day as such, I'd, probably the only constants in my days are that I'll be woken up too early by my very small children <laughs> and I'll go to bed too late because I'll stay up 
on my phone reading <laughs> any nonsense that I can find until far too late. And then I just get through the next day on caffeine and adrenaline. Sure. Yeah. Um, but there's, uh, should I tell you a little bit about, about the business and, and what the, the business is? That yeah, that'd be a good, good place to start, to I think. Um, so the, the company is called Delightful Media. Um, I started the company about six years ago. Um, predominantly a production and publishing company specializing in food and drink, mostly drinks these days. Um, so there's kind of two sides to what we do. One side is producing content for brands, video content or, or photography uh, that they can use on their platforms or that will go on TV or wherever it might be, whatever they want to do with it. Um, and the other side of the business is publishing. So Delightful Drinks, which you mentioned, um, is our cocktail focused channel. Um, mostly on Instagram at the moment, about to launch on some other, uh, in some other areas as well. Um, and we publish content about cocktails. So mostly videos, some stills, recipes, things for people to make at home, places for people to go and discover and drink cocktails and working with excellent bartenders like yourself and friends and all the rest of it. Yeah, it has been really fun working together. I absolutely love the channel. I, in doing my like little bit of research for today, I actually found myself on your website. Um, and I thought that even in itself was a really cool resource. Like it's, um, it's you seem to have loads, it's a really good place to go and find cocktail recipes and your videos and all that kind of thing. I follow you on Instagram religiously, of course. It is always just such a treat when these things pop up because they're beautiful videos. Is taking those videos the favorite part of your job? I think the thing that I really like is the instant feedback that you get. So I love to create content. Uh, my background is in TV. Um, I've always been about, hey, I'm going to overuse the word content. So I need to think of a different way to say it. Um, but I love to make things. I love to be creative. Um, I've always been quite creative. Um, and what I love about social media and the internet is that you can make something, you can put it online, and then within seconds, you're getting instant feedback. It's kind of why I moved away from from traditional TV because the, the process of making a TV show is obviously so much longer. Um, you have to shoot it and then you have to wait for it as long as it's, unless it's a live program, of course. Um, you make a program, it gets edited, then many weeks or months, sometimes even years later, that will go on screen and you'll get that audience feedback. But with social media and with digital content, it tends to be a lot more immediate. You can shoot something, you can upload it, you can even shoot it on your phone, you can upload it straight away. And then as long as you've got some kind of audience, however big or small that might be, you get that instant feedback. You get that instant hit of uh, <laughs> reward that those uh, platforms exist to give you, to keep you coming back. Yeah, I, that, that totally resonates. And um, so doing social media is um, sort of an expectation for us, I guess. Um, it's a difficult one to quantify um, when it comes to actually like targets and stuff. But I've found it to be a really nice way to channel my interests things like photography or um, writing or even selecting the music to upload with stories and stuff like that. It's, it, it's a really nice way to actually harness those things and make sure you keep practicing and keep developing with that sort of thing. So you talked about TV beforehand and you worked in TV for how long? Uh, that is a good question. <laughs> um, so when I, was, when I was little, right, just to go back, turn this into a therapy session. Uh, <laughs> As a child, like I always wanted to be a TV presenter. When I was growing up, I was watching Philip Schofield at the time in the, the CBBC broom cupboard. Right. Um, um, and then as I became an awkward teenager and developed self-consciousness, I was like, actually, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Definitely don't want anyone to ever look at me. 
but I do want to make TV. I want to be, you know, behind the scenes. I want to be producing that content, putting things onto television. Um, so I went to uni, didn't study media or anything like that. I actually did a politics degree and then started applying for work in TV, um, which was quite hard because I didn't have any experience in TV. And everyone was like, you need to get some experience before you can get this entry level job. I was like, but how do you get, how do you get the experience yeah. when this experience you know, this is the entry level experience. Um, and at the time I was, so I'd, I'd graduated, I stayed up in, in Newcastle where I went to uni. Um, I was working in a Carling Academy at the time, which would be an O2 Academy these days. Um, mostly serving pints, very few cocktails or no cocktails, if, unless you count a gin and tonic. Um, but the great thing about that was you were watching bands and you were serving drinks and, you know, it was, it was fun, but it had nothing to do with what I went on to do. Oh, you should go back there and do one of your videos of you know just the most uh luxuriously swirling golden pint being poured in your sort of um macro lens way it was usually about six deep at the bar you're just trying to get pints out as quickly as possible while people yeah. trying to watch the zootons behind you um actually the most stressful thing about that job was using the little we had a kind of swipey thing you had to scan a barcode on the bar and then shoot it into the till for it to register and the things didn't work properly oh, and it's just stressful. sat there swiping but i've i've gone massively off <laughs> off topic um <laughs> by the way and i'm going to take us further off when you said swipey thing i really thought you were talking about one of those little paddles that they use in sort of sophisticated french beer adverts where they might sort of delicately take the foam uh, yes. off the top of the pint no it was it was far from that it was a small <laughs> digital device yeah, that was okay. attached to my trousers at the time on an elastic cord um so i was up there and i was applying for kind of entry-level stuff work experience that kind of thing uh, i eventually got a placement at the bbc in manchester and from near manchester originally and at the time um there weren't that many opportunities to work in media in well outside of london so you were kind of at a, at a disadvantage unless you were in London or had access to London, um, which I didn't really at the time. So I got a placement at BBC Manchester in, in actually in development. So developing formats for television around new ideas for game shows and that kind of thing, which was really fun. It was a great sort of introduction to, to television. And then that was a set that was set, a set period. And then I did that and then went back to applying for jobs and applying for jobs and applying for jobs. And eventually... After many, many interviews and failed interviews and failed applications, I got a, I got a job um, down in London at a production company called Vera, um, making, they made predominantly comedy. Um, it was Rory Brenner's production company, The Impressionist. So um, the first job that I did was a program called Don't Watch That, Watch This, which was for BBC Two. And it was a kind of a mashup satirical comedy show. So they would take clips from the news or from politics and they would either redub them or we would shoot little inserts. That's fun. So it was quite silly, but it was a lot of fun. And certainly as, as, a, as a, a first job in TV, um, part of my role involved getting sent out to Hamleys to find a lightsaber or, oh, sure. you know, buying weird alien costumes or picking up policemen's costumes from costume hire places at you the don't, end of the Victoria line. You don't still do that? I don't do that anymore, role. sadly. No. So um, I did that and then showing my age but this was around the time when when youtube launched um if you can remember a time before youtube I, I can't really i do remember when it was new and i suppose it was similar to yeah anything anything uh that 
the most recent example being TikTok, I suppose, where it's always the kids that pick it up first. And you think, what is this new thing? And then it's just like a foundational truth after five years or something like that. It's hard, it is hard to remember a time before. Imagine that. That giant that's YouTube. Um, but I saw, I guess, because I was the youngest person there, I was a person who was probably closest to the internet and all the things that were happening. Um, I saw an opportunity to take clips from those shows that we were working on there, like Don't Watch That, Watch This, and the Rory Bremner, uh, Bremner Burden Fortune, it was called. It was impressions and political sketches. It was kind of made for an internet audience without realizing it because every section of those shows could be clipped up into two, three minutes. Uh, yeah. Just take an extract, put it online, um, title it, Alan Titchmarsh grows weed in his greenhouse. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, you've got <laughs> tens of thousands of uh, people stumbling across this thing and saying, is this real? Is this not real? So I was seeing that and I was experimenting with things on MySpace and it was the, all these things were starting to happen online. Um, and then I worked on a drama for Bebo, if you remember Bebo. I remember Bebo very well. RIP, although it's been back and gone a couple of times Oh, since. really? Yeah. Oh, I hope it comes back. Uh, so I, um, someone that I'd worked with in, in TV at that company hired me to do all the interactive content for this new drama called Kate Modern, which was going to be on Bebo. So it was a video, it was drama, video series, but all the characters had Bebo profiles. And every day, an installment of this drama would would go online. So that was really fun. Yeah. Um, I did that for a year, dressed up as a cream egg at one point. <laughs> it, it was a very uh, small team. I've seen this picture. <laughs> that finds its way onto your presentations, I think. <laughs> very possible. Did that and then I kind of went back into TV in a way um, with a reality series for, again, it was for, for Bebo called The Gap Year. Um, and I was doing that. And then... I went back into TV proper and started working on Big Brother in the kind of digital team. So based in a porter cabin inside a massive studio, the George Lucas stage at Elstree Studios, where I think they filmed Strictly oh, or, wow. or did at one point. Um, all of, So the Big Brother house was there. All the production team were based in various porter cabins in and around yeah. Elstree Studios in, in Borehamwood for three months. Um, and I started the first ever Twitter account for Big, for Big Brother. Because obviously Big Brother is a very interactive, or was, it was on Channel 4 at the time, a very interactive show. People have a lot of opinions about Big Brother. People love to watch Big Brother and hate the people on it. Mm -hmm. um, so I was dealing with a lot of that, just keeping people active on, on Twitter. Um, it was the, the first year they'd killed the live stream. There used to be a 24-hour live stream. So a lot of what I was dealing with was just people being abusive to me um, and holding me personally responsible for turning off the... <laughs> the live feed, uh, which I had nothing to do with. <laughs> um, and then I went from there uh, and I, I stayed in TV for a while. I did programs like The X Factor and Britain's Got Talent and The Apprentice and those big kind of recurring entertainment shows um, that have budgets for digital content and, and social media. And then from there, so this was about 2014, um, I was hired to go and work for Jamie Oliver, the chef. Uh, to launch a new YouTube channel for him called Drinks Tube. Um, they had Food Tube already, which was his his cooking recipes channel, which was already very big. Um, and they'd seen an opportunity to create content about cocktails that was branded um, and also strands around beer and wine and soft drinks. Basically, if you could drink it, we would make content about it. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd worked in drinks, obviously. I liked drinks and I was aware of drinks and I'd had cocktails before, but mm -hmm. I'd never made videos about cocktails. And it was that job that 
it made me fall in love with drinks and realize that there's so many interesting stories to tell about drinks. There's so many interesting people working in the drinks industry. Um, and it was always a surprise to me that bartenders were never seen in the same sort of arena as chefs. Chefs get so much respect and the, and the top celebrity chefs obviously very well known for what they do, but the same thing hasn't still hasn't really happened with bartenders hmm. um, outside of the more knowledgeable consumer or the, or the people within the industry already. You don't tend to have that breakout star bartender like you do a, a star chef. Thought of this while you were speaking then, it's this idea of you like the background. And I did think about this with with delightful drinks. It's this really relatable entity that doesn't really, that has a sort of recognizable tone of voice, obviously a recognizable um style in terms of the videos that you you make. But so often now with food and drink, it's about the sort of the personalities that go with it. Almost with let's use Jamie Oliver as a good example, or maybe like Nigella Lawson or something. These are almost lifestyle shows now. The food is there as a prop or as a as a mechanism to move forward. But with your videos, it really is about the drink. You know, the focus is always so directly on the drink itself. First of all, I should say there isn't really that much footprint of the delightful drinks personality, except for the structure of the video. And then if a, if the bartender wants to use their um, personality or show the personality of their bar, it has to be through that drink. I think it has this really, really lovely focus. So it makes sense given what you're saying about, I suppose it's that idea of being in the background, but using that in a way that ends up with a really brilliant uh, video. Yeah, it's cool. I think different platforms have different, there's, there's different ways to make the best performing content for different types of platforms. So when we did DrinksTube, it was only on YouTube. YouTube is great for longer videos. Um, people love to watch other people talking to camera. Um, I'm going to make an old fashioned, but it's going to take me four minutes because I'm going to tell you where I'm making it, why I'm making it, a bit of history about the old fashioned, why I'm using this particular spirit, why I'm using this, why I'm using that, which is great. And if you want a more of a sit back viewing experience, then you go to YouTube for that. But when we launched Delightful Drinks, it was on Facebook and Instagram, which at the time were better for shorter videos, more visual content. Um, so it was out of necessity, really. And if I was making that content on YouTube, then it would be back to those longer videos, probably a little bit more, a little higher in the um, the visual stakes, um, up the production values for sure from the DrinksTube days. But it would be longer and it would have more of that personality of, not necessarily of delightful drinks, because I don't think delightful drinks I mean, it kind of has a tone of voice, yeah. but it isn't about it being a person or a personality. It's about being a place for other bartenders to come and show us their personality or even for the drink to, to show its personality or for the venue, for the bar to show its personality. So when we're making content, in, I really need to stop saying content. There's, isn't that just the technical term? I know, but there should be another one, shouldn't there? There needs to be a better word. Was there a certain moment maybe with Simone or doing some sort of um, drinks tube, I'm going to say it, content, uh, that you realise that I think this is where we should move into. I think delightful drinks is the way to go. You know, conceive of the, the idea to move into doing delightful drinks in the way that you have. So I'd been doing drinks tube for about two years um, and I decided that it was time to try something else. I wanted to work with more talent. I wanted to work with more brands. I wanted to do more things. Um, and I'd always wondered what it would be like to work for myself um, to, to make all the decisions and the mistakes of which I've made many. 
both decisions and mistakes since I set this thing up. Um, so I left and at, initially Delightful Media was a just a production company making branded content in food and drink, specializing in, in food and drink. So building on what I'd learned at, during my time at Jamie Oliver and, and taking that into other areas. Um, and also we did a lot of influencer work. So we would find the right influencer talent in food and drink for specific briefs. And it was doing that that made me, and obviously from doing Drinkstube, I realized the potential in owning an audience and having your own kind of media brand uh, where you become the influencer in a way or, or the publisher. Um, and so I launched Delightful Drinks. And specifically, Drinkstube was very much consumer focused or solely consumer focused. So it didn't really have any credibility in the on trade. It was very much about Jamie saying, Grab yourself an egg cup, bosh a bit of gin in there, stick it in your glass. That's a good impression. Thank you. I could go <laughs> further, but it would be embarrassing, so I won't. Um, and I didn't want to do that again. I wanted I wanted Delightful Drinks to be credible with bartenders. I wanted bartenders to want to be on it, on the channel. Um, I wanted bars to want to have us in and to be seen on Delightful Drinks. Um, and also I wanted to try and push the production values a little bit higher, so investing in better kit, working with proper film cameras, making drinks look as good as they could possibly be. Um, so more visual, more focus on the drink, more kind of hands and things rather than someone talking to camera, giving you five minutes on whatever it might be. Sure. Um, and out of necessity, again, because we were uploading to Instagram, uh, there was a length limit of 60 seconds, so everything had to fit within 60 seconds. So the videos actually that, that we start off with do look quite, well, to me at least, look quite different to the ones we have now. I'm sure. Um, we used to have the bartender introducing the cocktail before they made it. Um, and we used to have them saying delightful at the end when they had made it. <laughs> and then I realized we needed this completely different setup of sound and everything else to capture those bits. And it was just, it was costing us so much time that because we're on such a tight budget and because as you will know, bars do not have days and days for you to be in there filming mm -hmm. and they want you out quite quickly so that they can open so our days were shorter than probably a regular production day in a studio would be so we looked to streamline that because i needed the cost per video to be as low as possible because it was a self-funded exercise i needed to just churn through videos so how quickly can we capture a recipe video so lost all the sound stuff lost all the bartenders talking and just focused on the drink and how it's made and, and making that look as good as it possibly could. Hello, this is Danny, and this is the importance of simplicity. I was thinking recently of the evolution of drinks and the way we serve them. I think lots has changed and I want to offer my two cents about it. I remember back in the day, excellent bars like ECC in Chinatown. Maybe it was year 2009, 2010. Well, these bars, they were making drinks with seven, eight, nine ingredients even, maybe even more. Now, if we look at what goes on nowadays in very famous bars, the opposite is happening. You can find great cocktail bars and great cocktails made of two, three, or four ingredients. Just think about all the trendy highballs you've had seen in the past two or three years. And why is this? Well, I think we progressed a lot in terms of technique. Now we use stuff like a centrifuge or a rotovap 
we clarify, we redistill, and this is quite normal. As a result, most of the work happens behind the scene, whilst the delivery of the drink, the cocktail itself, is pretty streamlined. I believe, but this is my personal opinion only, so take it as it comes, that Three Sheets, the bar named Three Sheets in Dolson, started this. The trend expanded to the likes of Lioness, of course, very celebrated cocktail bar in London, Little Mercy's in North London, The Punch Room in town, and now Shapes in Dolston. Surely there is many more places, of course. These are just the ones that I have on top of my mind now. But simplicity is not only the way the drinks are served. I strongly believe that menus must also follow suit. It's not only necessary to deliver drinks in a simple way. The menu itself must look simple. To me, a drink that can be explained in terms of flavors in a plain way is missing a trick. This doesn't only mean that we need to learn how to write menus in a plain way. It also means that nowadays we must learn how to plan drinks in an essential and streamlined way. Long story short, simplicity is key now. If you're interested, if you want to read a good example of this, of the simplicity I'm talking about, of course, apart from visiting the bars I've just mentioned, I recommend you read Batched and Bottled by the Venning Brothers. It's a cocktail book, it's fantastic, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. Some great advice from Danny about how keeping it simple is key. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bar Fabric Presents. If you've enjoyed the show, please share and leave us a review. If you've missed episode one and two, check them out now. We have a segment called Four More Bars, which talks about the importance of music setting the right atmosphere in bars and venues. There's an accompanying playlist every episode, so you can hear all of the tracks Joseph talks about with his guest. It's available on Spotify, so check it out now. In our next episode, you'll hear the second part of How Do You Get That Job with Jonathan Almond, founder of Delightful Media and Delightful Drinks. You can find more information on our guests in the show notes. And finally, a huge thank you to the team. I'm Ali Didianko. This podcast was recorded at Capsule 24 Studios in London and produced by Silver Music Entertainment.